Right now, it's about 5.30 p.m. in the middle of July 2020. I'm in Montreal. Actually, I'm in the Summit Woods at the top of the mountain that sits right in the middle of the city. And I'm taking things into my own hands. On this journey to better understand the changes in nature and biodiversity through sound recording, I thought maybe I can help by recording some of the ecosystems near me. So let me start by facing northward. Uh, I can't see the street from here, but I can certainly hear it. And when I turn around, most of that is going to disappear. Again, I'm standing in the exact same spot. The only difference is this 180 degree turn. All right, let's start by pointing it northward. And then after about 30 seconds, I turned on my heels and recorded what was up until then behind me. And as I predicted, the incoming soundscape was very different. And now I turn 180 degrees. This is the same sonic environment from the same standing position. The only thing that changed was what direction I was facing. And after this experiment, I felt really unsure. I still heard soundscapes made up of collections of different sources, but why did I hear such a difference from basically the same standing position? We've been thinking about soundscape ecology as a way of studying an ecosystem's interactions over the last episodes, but now I'm left anxiously questioning how we're supposed to do that when a position can change everything. This is Environments. I'm the researcher sound guy. This is the third episode of a limited series, and to problematize the whole story, I ask, what's in a position? In this episode, I want to see how changes in positions for both recording and listening can affect the way we collect and analyze an ecosystem's sound. And it's going to complicate everything we've learned about soundscapes so far. In fact, the things I learned in the last episode made me think about my intentions and priorities in listening in telling you this story of soundscape ecology. Turns out this is as much about position as it is about positionality. I'm still on this journey to find out how soundscape recordings can help us understand changing ecosystems and biodiversity, but I think I'm starting to think about it in a different way.
So let's get up to speed. As a recap, soundscape ecology is a way of studying interactions between the sounds of living organisms, their environment, and human activity. Some ecologists record these soundscapes remotely with recording devices that are either left on for hours, days, or even weeks at a time. Others record for smaller intervals of time, and even some ecologists do the recording hands-on by trekking into the heart of an ecosystem and sitting with their microphones waiting to record interactions between biophonic, geophonic, and anthrophonic sounds. In other words, the sounds made by living organisms, the landscape, and humans. But this episode is more about the choices made by that last group. Humans. Us. Because the truth is, there are many more possible ways we can listen and record, and maybe I've been taking that for granted this whole time. So first, let's talk about... Space. That little experiment at the beginning of the show inspired me to explore how sounds vary across a landscape's space. And in trying to play the role of ecologist, I thought I'd extend on these experiments. So, here goes nothing. Over the course of the summer and fall of 2020, I did a bunch of soundscape recordings across natural areas in my home province of Quebec in Canada. My hypothesis was that recordings of the same ecosystems would sound different if I changed my physical position in the landscape. And to see if they did, I would stand in one place, record for about a minute, then turn around 180 degrees and record for another minute. This was done using my Tascam DR40 recorder that has pretty wide but definitely not omnidirectional pickup patterns. This means it records mostly what is in front and beside me, but not behind me. In the last episode, ecologist Almo Farina basically confirmed that a given landscape sound is really variable. You uh, introduce a geographical dimension and uh, you introduce space. And uh, such a spatiality can be described um, and uh, we can see that uh, in a landscape, the soundscape is not homogeneous. You are moving across the landscape and you find different typology of soundscape or of acoustic signatures. All right, so let's put that to the test. Here I am on the bridge over the Rouge River near Huberto, Quebec in July of 2020. My first position was facing east. And then I turn to face west. To be sure there was a difference in these positions, I adopted something I learned from the last episode called spectral analysis. And spectral analysis, as ecologist Raphael Proux told us last time, is is time on the x-axis, its frequency on the y-axis, and it's uh, the amplitudes are are colors in there. This is an image of sound, and we can also try to assess the heterogeneity of the patterns in there and try to have a a metric or an estimate of the biodiversity of the acoustic, uh, like soniferous animals, like just animals that are communicating out there. So sure enough, I ran my recordings through a spectrogram, and the results show some definite variations in which frequencies are most present in the recording. 
The minute I turn slightly to face the west, the frequencies between 5,000 and 10,000 hertz start to become a lot more intense. In this case, it's probably because my recording device could start to hear the rushing rapids of the Rouge River with better clarity. But the record shows the recording position frames the soundscape in very minute ways. All right, here we go, pointing toward the ground. Sometimes I tried tilting my recording device from pointing towards the roots of a tree to its top. This is me in Oka National Park, also in July 2020. Running this through the spectrogram, I don't see a huge variation, but the intensity of the frequencies made by the bird sounds definitely gets stronger as I point my microphone towards the canopy. These experiments show us small changes in position create variations in hearing the ecosystem's acoustic signatures. So what does that mean? It means the ecosystem is really hard to record with complete accuracy, and more than that, its sounds aren't uniform or homogeneous. I did similar experiments where the one variable wasn't my position in space, but my position in time. For example, I camped at a protected forest in a permaculture village called Terra Perma in Quebec's Laurentian region. And because I was spending time overnight, I could hear how the ecosystem's sonic patterns changed over the course of a day. I did three recordings, six hours apart. So here I am recording at 5.10 p.m. And here's the same location at 11.45 p.m. And finally, at 6 a.m. So wouldn't you say there's an audible difference here? Birds only make sounds at certain parts of the morning, while crickets only come out in the evening. So studying how these two groups might interact might totally be missed if I only recorded either just in the morning or just at night. All this to say, I was able to see and hear firsthand that Almo Farina's comment on differences in soundscapes in the same landscape poses a bit of a challenge for soundscape ecology. After all, how can we learn from ecosystem sound when the patterns, complexities, weather, and animal vocalizations are constantly changing from place to place and time to time? But maybe we can return to another idea that was proposed by Dr. Farina to help us take account of all these variations in the sounds across a landscape. We can describe the relatively homogeneous patches of sounds as uh, sonotopes, and this is like patches in landscape ecology. And uh, this is a definition, it's personal definition, uh, is not used from, for, from uh, not many people indeed, but I insist that this is a way to describe something. So a portion, a part of a soundscape uh, that uh, insist in one place is defined some tops. So the more I thought about soundscape ecology as just a perceptual patch, the more I felt that soundscape ecology was never really looking to analyze one definitive soundscape. 
In fact, it's helping me to realize that a soundscape is almost like a cake. Just bear with me for a second. You might only eat the icing and never taste the cake itself, but it doesn't mean that what you tasted was inaccurate. It's just one patch of the cake, one approach to it. Okay, maybe that wasn't the best example, but you know what I'm getting at here. I felt a little more secure with my assumptions about recording and framing when talking to a pioneering soundscape ecologist named Bernie Krauss. There is no microphone in the world or microphone system in the world that is going to pick up an entire habitat. The ways that microphones are built, the philosophy behind them, is each of them, each type, has its own, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, Pickup pattern. Pickup, thank you. But the patterns, the patterns really are important to consider because they will eliminate, unless it's an omni, uh, an, an omni mic, it, they will eliminate some aspect of the soundscape by virtue of their pattern. So the microphones aren't picking up everything. They're just picking up what you've decided to choose as your pattern in the first place and how you've decided to place your mics. So you're not going to get everything. You, you, you never will. So the ecologists know that attempting to capture and analyze quote-unquote real sound is not even possible the minute the recording happens. Now when I hear that, I immediately think that poses a huge problem for soundscape ecology. Maybe the sonotope idea is what we ought to aim for. It's so much more beneficial to go with a concept that says, this is just a partial idea, a patch of a soundscape. What if I took the idea of the sonotope and thought about it a little more theoretically? Don't worry, it's not going to get too abstract, but I think there's a real usefulness to thinking about how we listen as a patch of all possible listening interpretations. Let me explain. All these differences in physical recording positions are only part of what I want to look into when I talk about position. The other big part of position is positionality. And if that sounds a little abstract, let me try to put it another way. In the first episode, I talked a lot about the main definition of soundscape that has influenced soundscape ecology and the overall popular idea of environmental sound. But just because it's popular doesn't mean it's the only way of describing a soundscape. And because we hit a bit of a bump in the road because of the problem caused by recording position and framing, maybe we need to think about how and why we listen to the ecosystem in a certain way. I'm not going to try to find out about all other possible ways of conceptualizing soundscapes and listening to them. I don't think I'm in a place to judge what counts and what doesn't count as a way of listening. But the point here is just to say that there are many listening positionalities, not just the popular ones. And when I talk about positionality here, I'm talking about the subconscious way that each person uniquely processes and extrapolates meaning from the sounds around them. The word positionality itself is pretty loaded, but I'm using it here as a way to talk about specific listening outlooks on the world. And thinking about it made me reflect on my own listening positionality. I had to ask myself why I started our story the way I did. 
and mainly it was because the focus of this podcast is on the methods and discourses involved in soundscape ecology. Because the World Soundscape Project and R. Murray Schaefer had a big influence on how Bernie Krauss and others started recording ecosystems, I thought it was a good place to start. But what I didn't want to do is make it sound like it was the only way to think about soundscapes. Bernie Krauss knows that there are more ways of listening, more ways of considering the role of sound in the landscape, and that even Schaefer himself and his work is maybe not enough. One of the things that bothers me about Schaefer's work, the, the written stuff in, in particular, is that it doesn't take into account uh, the ways in which people in different cultures actually listen and consider music. Um, and you and I are talking about this stuff right now. Uh, soundscape ecology and acoustic ecology is a very white brand. And uh, we got to do some thinking about how, um, you know, how, about the limitations of that, our own cultural thinking and what we brought to the, to the discussion and how that can be changed and made more whole. And if that's a problem with Schaefer, it's a problem for soundscape ecology. Also, the academic group from which Schaefer came in, at Simon Fraser University in the 1960s and 70s um, with Barry Truax and, and Hildegard Westerkamp, it was all very white. Uh, very few people were involved in the environmental issues um, that weren't, you, you know, white academics. So, but, but that's a real problem with the whole idea and the concepts and the way and the philosophies of soundscape ecology. I mean, look at the look at the online discussions that are occurring right now. And it's all white shit. Listening positions in a lot of sound related fields usually imply listening as a white person. And the less we acknowledge that, the harder it becomes to see. And after talking to Bernie Krause about this, the more I find Schaefer's definitions and terminology are sort of damaging in certain ways. This kind of white listening positionality is everywhere in his writing and the work with the World Soundscape Project. And if we think back to the first episode again, I brought up a way Schaefer classified signals and noise within a soundscape. He characterized soundscapes as either hi-fi or lo-fi depending on how either sparse and open they were or how dense and grating they were. The problem here, again, is that there is a priority in listening. It takes a pretty inert soundscape and turns it into something preferable or unwanted. Of course, Schaefer was trying to suss out what was best for our hearing, but he still imbued what we hear with a certain hierarchy. And as Bernie Krause has said to me, these listening habits continue in soundscape ecology. Shimmering sound. Sweeping sound. New dimensions in Listening for things that matter over other things, or preferring clear signals over noisy overlap, like Schaefer suggests, emphasizes a discourse of audiophilia, or this weird masculine stereo culture. Brilliant AM-FM radio. A speaker system balanced for high range. He's kind of acting like the guy at the record store who says vinyl is the only way to listen to a certain band. I roll my eyes and groan. Total sound stereo has the most beautiful cabinets you've ever seen. So is talking about sound and landscape preservation according to Schaefer's terms sort of toxic? Bernie Krauss weighed in with his experience. 
it was another white colonialist coming into those environments and doing the work. Um, you know, I got to admit where, where I was coming from, you know, and, and I was, I was attending th those um, meetings and, and, and encounters um, as a white person who was going to draw material from them and publish it. Well, that's bullshit. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretentious and it's bullshit and I admit it. And, but that was the culture I came from. And so I had to go through that in order to, you know, see what was happening around me. You just have to change that attitude. You know, we can't be, we'll be the sociologists going into these different group, groups and like, uh, you know, like we have done, you know, and extract a whole image of stuff from our, from our perspective and hope we're going to learn anything about the world around us. Since ecosystem knowledges in soundscape ecology are so reliant on certain ways of listening and recording, unpacking these consequences becomes really important. After all, the process of recording and extrapolating data from unceded indigenous lands is problematic in and of itself. I had asked Bernie Krauss if his collaborative work with indigenous communities changed the way he considered his listening and recording. Uh, one of the, the main thing that I learned was to shut the fuck up you know, and just be quiet and, uh, and, and to shut off all of that, you know, stuff that was going on in my head to ask questions and to learn stuff, you know, screw that, man. What you what you get when you go out there is you you be really quiet. You um, follow the rules, the cultural rules. You learn them very quickly. And I, I have to admit, I didn't spend a lot of time uh, with any of these groups. I mean, maybe months uh, at a, at a time. And I just learned to be a little bit. I, I think I learned to become a little bit more humble with my ideas and my, uh, you know, my conclusions, and my biases. Um, and uh, I hope that, you know, I didn't get to it too late to be able to actually do something about it. So maybe thinking about these more unique approaches to recording and listening is what I've been looking for. Maybe this is how we get around all those problems in framing and position that I started this episode with. And speaking of the beginning of the episode, I was pretty influenced by that idea of sonotope that Dr. Almo Farina taught to me. And just to remind you, like I said before, a sonotope is a portion, a part of a soundscape that insists in one place is defined sonotopes. If we can think about soundscapes as patches or layers, maybe this is the way that I can connect the dots between the perspectives, ideas, methods, and variations involved in soundscape ecology. If everything is just a patch, doesn't everything matter? Bernie Krauss. The, the problem that I have with some of my colleagues is they're so locked into the idea of the academic expression 
and how to make things sound academic. I don't know that the, that his uh, sonotope is 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 the is wrong. I don't know that, but I think it's much simpler than that, and and yet more complex. At the same time, there's a contradiction there. As far as being simpler, maybe we can just think of the sonotope as a perspective, a perceptual layer. Maybe there's a way here to incorporate soundscape ecology with many layers of perspectives, listening habits, and analytical tools. Maybe we can accumulate all these patches and layers to have a really strong acoustic idea of biodiversity and ecosystem health. And if we bring in more perspectives or patches, won't that make for a more diverse and better science overall? I went back to the author of this term, Almo Farina, to ask if these broader perspectives and interdisciplinary approaches are a good thing for soundscape ecology. We are using different disciplines to investigate the same things. And the people is use this uh, strategy. Different disciplines are welcome, no more or less. turns out that I was wrong on a couple of hypotheses I had. The first is that different recording positions with different framing do not pose problems for soundscape ecology. All those differences in time and space I recorded myself don't add up to an unstable and insufficient image of an ecosystem's sound. They're simply different sonotopes. Different layers and patches of the ecosystem's sound that contribute more data that ecologists can study. The other thing that I was wrong about was starting the story with Schaefer. It's not that what he says doesn't matter, it's that he makes up only one listening positionality. And thinking about it now, even though Schaefer's voice has a certain authority because it deeply influenced how soundscape ecology listens to nature, it is not the end-all and be-all. Realizing this actually made me question the way I've been taught to listen. What have I been ignoring? Why do I listen the way that I do? And for the next episode, what kind of other layers, other positions can we tie into soundscape ecology? Environments is made in association with Concordia University's Communications Department. An enormous thanks to my guests, Dr. Bernie Krauss and Dr. Almo Farina. This episode was written, produced, mixed, and scored by myself, Lou Raskin. Special thanks also goes out to Owen Chapman. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.